Welcome to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. They get the credit, we ask the questions. This is Credit Hour. Today on Credit Hour, we speak with former North Dakota U.S. Senator Heidi Heitkamp about her career and the Savannah Act, a piece of legislation regarding murdered and missing indigenous women. Senator Heitkamp, how are you doing this afternoon? I am terrific. It's great to be in South Dakota. <laughs> kind of. Kind of. <laughs> well, I was going to tease you about that. Now, you are here for the annual Thurgood Marshall Lecture hosted by the USD School of Law to speak about the Savannah Act and the topic of murdered and missing indigenous women, something that you're really passionate about. Um, but first, we wanted to just get to know a little bit more about you. Um, you represented North Dakota in the U.S. Senate from 2013 to 2019. You were also an attorney general from North Dakota for eight years. And you were also the state's tax commissioner. Um, you know, what got you interested in public service? You know, I've I've always been um, interested in uh, uh, in government and in public policy, and the one thing that that is kind of hard is to really do it at any any meaningful level. You really have to be involved in politics because who holds those seats makes a huge difference in terms of what the public policy agenda is. You know, I'm a, always a firm believer that the government can be a force for good. It should only do what it absolutely has to, but that for so many of us. Us and my grandparents, me, I wouldn't be where I am without the government investing in student loans. My grandparents would have lived in poverty if it hadn't been for the Social Security system. My parents, my mother would not have had quality health care at uh, the end of her life if it hadn't been for Medicare and Medicaid. And so I understand how important those services are and how important government is to the livelihood and want to be part of making sure that um, we deliver fair, equitable services. Um, to the people of the country. Yeah, maybe you've, you may have just answered this question, but, you know, politics, I think, gets a bad rap. What would you say to people, you know, regardless of political persuasion, like, you know, what would you say to them to convince them that politics does matter and that it's important for more people to get involved in the process? Well, I mean, I don't, I, I, I don't think if they don't see an example right now why politics matters, it's all consuming. And um, if you don't have a voice or if your voice is on the sidelines, you're not participating and important decisions that are being made on your behalf. And so the one thing that I would would tell you is that um, politics gets a bad rap because people don't like politicians, right? They don't like people who don't say what they mean. They don't like people who aren't willing to stick their neck out for what they believe in. They don't like people who promise things who don't deliver it. They don't like people who bully other people. And so I think that if politicians were better, politics would have a better reputation. Um, you know, I, do you have a favorite, I guess, position that you've held? Is there one, you know, would you go back to the tax collector position if you could? No, I mean, no. it, do you have a, 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 you know, every role was unique, but what aspect of, about those roles did you really admire and, and enjoy? Uh, I really like being attorney general. Attorney general was a spot where you got involved in almost all the critical issues of the state, but also were able to do things in a creative, innovative way. And so I spent a lot of um, time when I was attorney general working on social policy issues whether it was addiction, which is one of the main reasons why so many people end up in the criminal justice system, whether it is early childhood education that can prevent addiction. Um, uh, and, and, you know, one of the things that I did when I was attorney general is I negotiated the tobacco settlement with my colleagues. And um, that experience uh, was hugely beneficial in terms of proving that public health campaigns can actually make a difference in the quality of health care in this country country. 
You know, one thing that I admire about your political career is that you've both won and lost elections, yeah, but then sure you've have. like gotten back on the horse. You know, one story I, I think that is just really memorable is that you were diagnosed with breast cancer during a gubernatorial run in the year 2000. I think some people maybe would have like given up after that. What what made you decide to like throw your hat back in the ring in, in 2012 and decide that you wanted to run for U.S. Senate? Um, I was seeing this this horrible dysfunction um, led really by the emergence of the Tea Party and and people being angry and going to town halls and not listening to another perspective or another point of view. And I thought, you know, I've always been someone who could work across the aisle. I've always been somebody who can take an idea and get a lot of people to believe in it. And I thought that's that's something that Washington needs. And so um, I really I really did it to present a different uh, version of political leadership than what people were seeing. Would you run for political office again? I don't think so. I think that, you know, um, you know, when I lost my race for governor, I was 44 years old. And so the idea was always, well, maybe if an opportunity presents itself or if if something moves me and it, it was another, um, you know, 12 years before I did that again. Um, and, and so I've had I've lived in the private sector and I've been a public official. And it, no matter where I am, I try and do things that I think will advance ideas that I that I believe in, um, uh, improve the quality of the democracy and improve, improve equity in our democracy. And, and so, you know, there's a lot of opportunities that I have to do those things, to have that kind of impact. Maybe not as significantly as United States Senator, but, you know, I'm going to continue to find ways to um, advance um, my causes. Did you enjoy campaigning? I, I think we've had a couple of you know, public officials on, and they've given varying answers. Uh, did you enjoy that? I mean, w- w- what aspect of that did you enjoy? Do you I have hated a favorite? fundraising. Hate, hate, hate fundraising. Loved campaigning. Do you have a favorite like campaign war story? I don't know that I have a favorite. I think I think um, all the times that. Um, I was blessed with, uh, um, you know, with Native children giving me gifts and all the times that I was blessed by mothers telling me that it makes a difference to their daughters. It's probably the the part that I'll always remember the most is that, you know, when you're out there, you have a chance to uh, present a different vision of political leadership than what they typically see in the Dakotas. And I took that responsibility very seriously. Now, we want to talk about Savannah's Act, and this is something that you worked on during your time in the U.S. Senate. Um, For people that maybe aren't familiar with Savannah's Act, can you give us the backstory on it? Uh, The backstory is that um, uh, over a lot of years, um, what became increasingly apparent is that where the rest of the world would pay a lot of attention to a missing, you know, uh, white person that that didn't get the same reaction um, for uh, Native American people. And so there was and and continues to be a huge backlog of cold cases involving missing and murdered indigenous people for which their families have never been given an opportunity to um, tell their story or to have their story heard. And so um, in keeping with uh, kind of the work that I had been doing um, uh, to try and bring, uh, I think, a greater sense of security to the reservations, we introduced, Lisa Murkowski and I introduced uh, a bill that we called Savannah's Act after Savannah Graywin. Um, that act um, 
um, uh, almost got passed um, in the in the Congress last Congress, and I'm hoping it'll get passed in this Congress. It's really modest. It's just a first step, and what it would do is it would hold uh, law enforcement agencies accountable for the um, uh, uh, cold cases and the lack of attention that they've paid to missing and murdered Indigenous women. You know, one thing that you said um, during your talk today that I I thought was just really interesting is that you said empathy without action is meaningless. What do you mean by that? I mean that we can all sit around and and feel bad about something or say that's horrible, but you know if you if you read a story and and you think that shouldn't happen in this country and and you have that opinion well, that's good. I'm glad you're empathetic, and I'm glad you understand it. But why not write a letter to your congressman? Why not look up the local domestic violence shelter and say, "I want to volunteer a few hours"? Why not, you know, go out on their website and and you know uh, make a donation to help them continue their work if you can't provide that volunteer service? I, I just don't think that that it's enough that we ask people to understand and be empathetic. I think that empathy should drive our actions. And, and um, you know, that's the way I've always lived my life. If I feel strongly about something, I think that I have a responsibility to do something about it. From a public policy standpoint, then, I mean, what are some ways that we can, I guess, improve the situation and provide, you know, additional resources to these communities that they can begin to well, work I think, on this problem? I, I, here's, a, here's something. I think that every person who listens to this who believes that missing and murdered Indigenous women have not been, have not been, uh, had their voices heard and and uh, uh, that, that we need change should write uh, their congressman and write their two senators and say, where is Savannah's Act? Where is where? Are, what are you doing to help that get passed, especially in con- in Congress? Um, and uh, what are you doing to reauthorize the Violence Against Women Act so that women, uh, whether they're transgender or bisexual or or you know aren't discriminated against and are offered equal protection? Um, or get, you know, there's a whole lot of things that people can do that can move the political system. And and I will tell you that if your senators get get 300 letters, you know, individual letters, it makes an impact. And all of a sudden, it becomes a little higher priority to get it done. You had some statistics um, that, uh, you know, you can only describe as troubling. I mean, you had mentioned that Native women are 1.5 times more likely to be victims of violent crime. They're more likely um, to be victims of repeat offenders, more likely to be victims of interracial um, uh, situations. You know, the question I guess I'm left wondering is why? Why is this problem seems so much more severe on reservation communities, um, in native populations, even in urban areas, than in other populations. I mean, I, I think the, the other thing I would tell you about those statistics, I think that they're underreported. I, I do. I think that, you know, they've given up on getting any justice. And so why go through the hassle of reporting the crime and, you know, the rape kit and, and everything else that might happen? You just you just, you know, move on with life because nothing will happen. 
And so I think a lot of it has to do, especially on the reservations, with the muddled jurisdictional morass that we have, and that needs to get fixed. And there needs to be a cop on the beat, and that cop on the beat needs to be the FBI, and the FBI needs to have a more regular presence as a law enforcement agency on the reservations. And and then beyond that, I would tell you BIA needs better training. They need to invest more in their law enforcement officers, and they need to work uh, more closely with the FBI. One of the things that I talked to the FBI about was merging the BIA into the FBI because it always seems like the FBI gets lots of resources, but BIA is left behind. Yeah, you said um, another thing that I thought was really interesting in your talk today was that violating principles of sovereignty is a big problem in Washington. And I think that you know, in the upper Great Plains, you hear about the concept of sovereignty, but it's really theoretical. We, yeah. You might not totally understand why it matters, the type of impact that it has then day to day in Native communities. Why does sovereignty matter and why is sovereignty important towards maybe taking the next critical steps of providing um, you know, these communities? with better resources or, you know, even a decision-making model that they can use then to improve their communities? I would, I would put it this way. If, if the state of North Dakota would only have half of its sovereignty, it'd only be half as effective in protecting its citizens. You know, I, you know, I just I, I think you've got to put this in the context of any other sovereign entity, whether it's a state, whether it's county, whether it's a city. And you have to think about how, uh, in many cases, tribal um, officials are really hampered in, in what they can do. But but I also think that Washington, here's a great example of of not understanding tribal sovereignty. If you ask people in Congress why there's Indian gaming, you know what they'd say? Because we allowed it. You know what the real answer is? They restricted it. The real answer is the Supreme Court said Native Americans as sovereign entities can decide whether they're going to have uh, gambling on the reservations. And then Congress intervened to restrict the kinds of games, to restrict and require that Native Americans seek approval from the states. So, so you know, I think, I think if you told that story, if you told the story of what happened with Indian gaming, people would be shocked because they think Indian gaming is something that they allowed as opposed to what they regulated and curtailed. Yeah, so then how, how do we implement, I guess, those principles into issues that we're facing today? I mean, I think of, of something like IHS. Um, is that an accountability issue or is that like a resource? Re- it's that- both. I think it's a resource issue. And I think we have so demoralized the employees of IHS. The ones that could find another job have moved on. So that's depleted the ranks. It's really hard um, in, in healthcare in any category in rural healthcare to recruit personnel, recruit healthcare workers, it's really hard in IHS to recruit those workers. And so as a result, a lot of times we're relying on locums who aren't really committed to the mission. I I mean, there's so much more that we could do with Indian health. But when people like John Barrasso, the senator from Wyoming, says it's not a resource issue, he's wrong. It's a resource issue. When we're only spending one uh, third of what we spend on a recipient of Medicaid in Indian health services, we've got a problem. 
And, and it's not as if the Indian population is without chronic illness. And so, you know, there's a, there's a lot that we could do following some of the work that the Obama administration did, but it's too easy to blame the employees of Indian Health than it is to actually fix the problem for a lot of my colleagues. Um, and I will blame colleagues on the Republican side. Regarding IHS, would you then, just based on the systemic problems that are within that organization. I mean, would you support some of the more, I think, radical ideas to just maybe totally do away with the IHS system and, and privatize it and let tribes? I don't, I don't know that you get where you need to go on privatizing. One of the things that I pushed really hard for was um, for everybody who is on the reservation to sign up for Medicaid. What I'd love to do, you know, let, let the IHS compete right? But because you aren't going to get a clinic necessarily to locate in Standing Rock. So you want that proximity and that may be the only way to get healthcare in proximity. But, you know, give everybody a Medicaid card, a treaty, a treaty healthcare card, not a Medicaid. Here's your treaty healthcare card. Go get your healthcare. You know, that's really what Medicaid is. And and to me, it, it's a it's a really important augmenter or supplement to um, uh, IHS. Plus, for many of the IHS, and especially 632 um, or 638 um, entities, which means they're tribal managed, having that flow of support, that insurance is can be really valuable and, and really um, help support their health care centers. You know, you said that as attorney general, you tried to bridge, you know, what you kind of termed to be almost like a historical divide um, between law enforcement or justice department um, type entities and then reservation communities. You know, with that history of mistrust, how can then state governments cooperate with reservation communities or tribal governments and, you know, make effective change? You, you build trust over time. You aren't going to get that trust back after years and years of abusing that trust. And so you have to build trust over time. I, I mean, I will tell you this story. I used to go to Standing Rock and people, you know, Standing Rock is a reservation where um, tribal members, uh, uh, council members come from both sides. They come from the South Dakota side, come from the North Dakota side. And when, when they would be particularly aggressive with me, my North Dakota friends would remind them that I was from North Dakota, not South Dakota. <laughs> hey. So North Dakota had a little better reputation at the time for being more collaborative and cooperative. And so I think that part of that is a cultural thing, but I think we're seeing better cooperation right now in North Dakota. The new governor has made it a priority, and I think that's terrific. But I think that you aren't you, you aren't going to walk in and say, hey, I'm the new kid in town and trust me. I mean, it's just not going to work. And you mentioned the Violence Against Women Act um, a little bit ago. I kind of want to talk about one of the issues that, that you delved into in your speech. And you said that one of the primary functions of government is to protect people. Why is it so important then for tribal courts to have jurisdiction over non-natives for crimes committed on reservations? That seems to be kind of the rub with the Violence Against Women Act. Why is that so controversial? Um, I don't know. I think because people are afraid, they're afraid, you know, it's like I said, they're, they're afraid. They say, well, I don't want to go to tribal court. I don't trust tribal court. I want to say, well, then stay the hell off the reservation, right? You got a choice when you, in any other, in any other sovereignty, if you step into the jurisdiction, I don't care if it's the Democratic Republic of the Congo, 
You're going to live by the rules of the Democratic Republic of the Congo. You're not living by, uh, and I'm not, I'm not equating tribal courts with uh, the Democratic Republic of the Congo. What I'm simply saying is that when you look at, at um, you subject yourself to the jurisdiction of the sovereign in which you are located. And my point is, in many of these cases, um, and, and in most cases, that's not true. And and so the, the other problem is, is that the entity that can prosecute a white offender on the reservation is the federal government, but the federal government has standards on how many, you know, how many tabs of LSD they're going to prosecute, how many, you know, whether it's serious enough assault that they're going to prosecute it. And so a lot of misdemeanor crime, you know, what I was talking about, a lot of misdemeanor crime goes un, unsolved and that leads to bigger things. You know, and this was something that you, again, spoke about in, in your speech that I felt a little bit ignorant about thinking about. I just had never really connected the dots in this way. But you kind of talked about the concept of, you know, encircling back to murdered and, and missing indigenous women in North Dakota and specifically, but with the kind of you know, gold rush of the Bakken oil fields, yeah. the problems that created for law enforcement, lack of resources, the jurisdiction jurisdiction issues that prevent effective enforcement. You know, what type of impact has that influx of thousands of people had in rural North Dakota? I mean, is it fundamentally changed how well, those communities it's, operate? It's, What's it's, it like? had, it's had a huge impact. I don't think you could talk to any of the tribal elders at Mandan, Hadassah, and Rekra who wouldn't tell you that this has had a fundamental, um, it, there's been a fundamental change in, in how their communities respond. And, and I think part of it is people have never been, never, uh, um, been exposed to tribal jurisdiction all of a sudden find out, Hey, you know, guess there's no cop on the beat here. Uh, we can act with impunity and do what we want. And we saw a huge increase in the number of people who were um, uh, assault victims um, and I think certainly human trafficking. And the last um, topic I want to kind of bring up that you had mentioned in your speech was Olivia Lone Bear um, and some of the advocacy work that you did um, based on the situation. She was a, a missing person, and it seemed that the police mainly treated it as a, a runaway case rather than um, you know someone who's maybe in danger. I don't know if you can just talk about how that experience has kind of informed your advocacy efforts and what being able to work on these issues has meant to you um, and some of the relationships that you've developed in North I, Dakota. I, I think where, where Savannah Gray win was a situation off the reservation, right? Um, uh, Olivia uh, Lone Bear was, was obviously a situation on the reservation where I saw law enforcement agencies really shrug their shoulders and say, it's, it's, I, I, I don't think I have anything to do with this. I don't think I have anything. It's a missing person. It's not a, a criminal jurisdiction. And we had to fight very hard with the FBI. We still haven't gotten answers. I don't think Olivia's family's gotten answers from the IRS investigation. And so, you know, in North Dakota, we have a constitutional amendment called Marcy's Law that gives uh, crime victims huge, huge power. Guess what? I think I think they need a little Marcy's Law on the reservations, and crime victims and crime victims' families need to have answers. And that's one of the things we're trying to do with Savannah's Act. 
You know, one thing that I think is unfortunate about maybe growing up in the upper Great Plains is that you become a little bit numb to the problems that occur in reservation communities. And, well, at least you know about it. You know, yeah, and, and, but you, you, you probably don't you know, pay enough attention to it, right? And something that you said, again, during your lecture stood out to me, in it, and you said that it was you know, the situation on the ground um, was worse when you were a U.S. Senator in 2012 than when you were like the Attorney General in the 1990s. I don't know, that bothered me. I, it just, where do we go from here? How how do we, you know, we, we all recognize that these are generational problems. We never come up with generational solutions, right? I, so I, I what think, can we do? I think that you can't do anything without consultation. For years, I think that what's what's happened is, is people say, oh, they need they need this factory, so everybody's gonna work in this factory or they need this or you know, so it's so it's white people's idea of what um uh indigenous people need and, and I think that there's a real opportunity to do something that's much, much, much more collaborative. You know, the last question that we usually like to ask on the podcast, a little bit more philosophical in nature. Um, but you know, you've I think lived an incredibly interesting life. You have a, had an interesting career, um, done many different things, been able to serve your communities in different capacities. At this point in your life, what do you know for sure? That the best form of government is our democracy and that um, it is imperfect. And it is our job as citizens of this great country to do everything that we can to improve our democracy. And that means improving equality for all people. Senator Heitkamp, thank you so much for joining us on our podcast, for visiting the University of South Dakota. Um, we won't ha- hold all of those bison victories against you right now, um, but it was uh, truly an honor to interview you. Thank you so much. Uh, thank you so much for having me. Thank you for listening to Credit Hour, a weekly thought-provoking conversation with the brightest minds from the University of South Dakota. Listening is 100% of the grades. We hope you enjoyed the episode. 